Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 110, recorded January 10th, 2013. January 10th, episode 110. It's it's like it was meant to be today. Oh my gosh, I didn't put that two and two together. That's amazing. That's somewhat amazing. That's, well, that's, <laughs> if you had a very it's all, low it's all scale, there. amazing. Well, that, oh, that is. 110, 110. Uh, Did we plan that? I don't know. That's pretty impressive. <sighs> All right, so we're doing the 90s. Uh, this is our 49th episode of that, and we're doing the original series, uh, Volume 2 by DC Comics, issues 58 through 60. Yes. And something that's kind of cool about it, it's a bit retro, because uh, we have some of the crew in the movie era talking about events that happened in the original series era. Right, and what's little... cool about it is it's a it's a three parter, so we get the whole story here in in this one episode. Yeah, which is cool. Al- almost like, like we planned it. Almost. <laughs> and considering the number, episode number, and when we're recording it, I don't know, Donovan. You're amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's definitely a, a good uh, flashback story, I think. Yeah, it, it's kind of cool to see the. Uh, the old ship and the old uniforms and a little more svelter, a little less wrinkles in the characters. Yeah, back back when Kirk is a blonde and not a curly-haired, I guess, it's not, it's dark brown. But I always thought of him as blonde in the TV series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've said this before, that when I was a kid watching the old show and then watching the movies, because my first exposure to Star Trek was the movies, mm-hmm. I could never buy that that blonde guy was the same guy. <laughs> it was. And the original guy. All right. So. With every hair follicle strategically placed for the ultimate in drama. Right. And I I am going to give this, this three-parter props that... A lot of times when I'm reading Kirk's dialogue, I yes. hear 1960s Shatner you in my 60s. head. That's and good. I'm just like, this is really good. I can hear him say these words. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's good. I, I did not, but um, I did like the comics overall. I thought they were good for the characters, and it's kind of interesting seeing mm, a little unknown love life in one of our favorite characters. Right. Which we'll get a little uh, hint as to who we're talking about here on the cover yeah. of the first issue. So, uh, if you're ready, Ken, I'll just jump straight into it. Please do. Alright, so this was issue 58. Came out March of 1994. The writer was Howard Weinstein. Artist was Carlos Garzon. Letterer, Bob Pinaha. Colorist, Matt Webb. And the acting admiral, a.k.a. editor, is Robert Greenberger, which he was the editor a while back, right? So he's come back for this uh, this two-parter or three-parter? I guess so. Interesting. 
Now, mind you, I don't know who's doing 61, but uh, yes, he was not the editor uh, in the last X number of issues. Right. I'm pretty sure he was the editor way back in the in, in the early 1990s. Right. All right, so the cover starts off with the lower left-hand side of the page shows the movie-era Chekhov looking a little crestfallen. You know, his head's kind of down. The bottom of the page shows a original series-era Chekhov in his gold tunic, and he's about to uh, share a kiss with a young woman. And above the two lovebirds is Kirk in his green wraparound tunic and Spock in his traditional blue. The upper part of the page shows the lower third of a planet and the very end of a Enterprise nacelle. And what's interesting about these three covers is they can be linked together to make one larger panoramic type picture. Uh, So this is just one third of that picture. The story starts off with the Enterprise docked at Starbase 92 for some much-needed R&R. As luck would have it, the Excelsior is also docked at the station, allowing the two crews to meet up and share some time together. Chekhov is being given the tour of the Excelsior by Captain Sulu himself. Sulu asks his friend if he is perhaps a little jealous that he's now captain and Chekhov is still aboard the Enterprise. Chekhov says he's only a little jealous when all the pretty women keep calling him Kipton. Ahura joins the duo at the mess hall. She informs them about the unfortunate death of Julia Candrell. This news shocks Chekhov, yet Sulu does not seem to know who she is. Chekhov tells him that she is the only woman he has ever proposed to. Sulu says he would remember any romance that Chekhov had. That was serious enough for marriage. Chekhov says that the time the two spent on the Enterprise was the end of their relationship, and that the majority of their romance happened back in Starfleet Academy. So we flash back to Chekhov's final year at the Academy, and that is the year that he and Julia met. They made the most of their time together, and after graduation, Chekhov proposed. She declined his proposal since... They were both being assigned to different ships, and they had no way of knowing when they would ever see each other. Sometime later, Chekhov is now aboard the Enterprise, and still a little nervous and jumpy around the senior crew. Spock joins Chekhov at the mess hall and informs the ensign that he's being assigned to navigation on the bridge. This is a huge honor for the young man. As time passes... And Chekhov starts to make close friends with Ahura and the master swordsman Sulu. The three of them spend a lot of time together in the gym, learning fencing from the master. Again, some time passes, and Chekhov is again startled in the mess hall. It's kind of a running theme here. When Julia Candrell arrives, and she's the one who startles him. He tells her that he has missed her for the last six months, 12 days, five hours since the two parted after graduation. Later, Ahura informs the captain about a radio distress signal two light years out. Spock confirms it, and Chekhov is ordered to take the ship there at warp six. Chekhov plans to spend the time en route having a romantic dinner with Julia. However, the young woman stands him up. He goes off looking for her and finds her in the Arboretum. 
She tells Chekhov that she still loves him, but she has changed, and she does not know what she wants. The Enterprise has arrived at a planet where the distress call came from. There, they find a huge alien craft bombarding a colony with radiation. The colony leader, Veneth, informs Kirk that the alien craft arrived two months ago and started the radiation. They pleaded with the craft, but they never received an answer. Kirk says he will do what they can. He tries to contact the ship themselves to no avail. They then fire a low-powered phaser to get aliens' attention. The blast is just shrugged off. The phaser power is increased to full, and yet the alien is able to reflect the energy with no problem. The Enterprise is rocked with the turbulence from the attempt. Kirk then orders the Enterprise to creep in close to the ship to get a closer look. As they near the craft, they are blasted, and Kirk orders a quick retreat. They decide it's time to visit the planet and speak with Veneth in person. Once there, Veneth tells them that they have no way of leaving the planet. Spock states that the Enterprise cannot move 2,000 people, and it would take up to four weeks for the Federation to send a ship large enough to move the people. McCoy breaks in and says that they can't wait that long. The animals and plants are already showing radiation poisoning and dying. The colonists are next to start feeling the effects. To be continued. Yes. So what is this mystery ship doing? It's being a big meanie. It is. And using a radiation beam. Hmm. Most hostile forces will try to get rid of you right away with, like, full phasers or something. But this thing is using radiation beam, which makes this a much longer uh, process if you're trying to hurt somebody on the ground. Hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's focusing this radiation right on top of the colony. Right. Which, you know, when Spock was listing off the, you know, possibilities of what they can and can't do to help these people, you know, he says, we can't take you on the Enterprise. We're going to have to wait four weeks for a a larger ship to show. (sighs) Yep. He never once says, pack up your stuff and move, you know, 100 (laughs) down the road and wait four weeks there. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so we can't beam you all on board the Enterprise, but we could maybe beam you to the other side of the planet or something. Or just uh, out, hitch up a wagon or something and, and just move. Hitch a <laughs> wagon train. Yeah, and even if you have to, you know, uh, separate your, your forces, you know, have people go in different directions, I mean, that is assuming that, that the ship would then follow them, you know, at least they couldn't follow all of them. Yeah, he, right, they right. list off all the things they can't do, but then there are other things they can do. But they don't bring that up because, after all, that, would, that wouldn't be good for the story. <laughs> right. I guess you have to have that tension. Exactly. Another thing they could do is, okay, they can't, they can't transport 2,000 people or whatever the number is, but at the very least, you could take the weakest people, the babies, the, the kids. You can get them on the Enterprise. True. Um, you know, at least save some people, but, eh. So there are more options here than they're mentioning, but hey, right. let's not think too much, shall we? <laughs> right. Yeah, so uh, I thought the artwork, to me, not all of it, but a lot of it was rather reminiscent of our old Gold Key comics, I thought. <laughs> I don't know if it was this one or uh, one of the later ones that really show people working at the bridge, and right. I will agree with you. The bridge looks 
it it looks like what technology looked like in the old gold he, gold key <laughs> That's right. that is funny that you mentioned it because I was having the same same thought. Yeah, yeah. So, and plus I mean, the Enterprise I, looks a little wonky at times. Yeah, uh, very rough. Uh, the, I mean, there's lots of uh, drawings of the Enterprise where there's extremely little detail on the saucer section. I which mean, on the original Enterprise, that's kind of what it looked like. Right, but I mean, there's one, page 10, and it looks like a kid's top. I mean, there's like almost nothing on the top of the saucer section that they're showing. Yeah, that's just an upside upside down pie plate. <laughs> oh, or that too. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm looking back on eight. Oh, yeah, right. On, uh, I think that's eight. Yeah, eight, yes. Yeah, where Similar. the Enterprise is blasting towards you. Exactly. That's extremely, extremely low, low detail. Where on page seven, you know, almost directly across, there's a lot more detail in the saucer section. Not the, not the cleanest detail in the world, but at least you got the typical lines that help put something. Right. Uh, you know, a little something, break up the... Uh, the saucer section a little bit yeah and, and then if you go to like page 11 that that was the one that i was really getting a gold key vibe off of uh, as far as you know the enterprise looks like the enterprise but not quite like, like oh. the cells look weird the saucer section looks a little like you said too smooth maybe yeah yeah but right and and that's not a you know that's not all that big of a criticism for me because I I, I kind of like different different takes on it. Sure, and I'm really fine with with the art here. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not the most detailed or lifelike in the world, but it's not bad, and uh, it just it just reminded me a bit of Golki. <laughs> right, I, I will agree with you on that. Yeah. The the one part of the artwork that I did not really care for, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was intentional or not, was. Poor Julia, there, especially there on page eleven. She is not drawn as an incredibly good-looking woman. <laughs> like her teeth and stuff, and her eyes a little bit. In her hair, she has these weird bangs. It looks like someone just cut them, and they're just sticking straight up. I, I, yeah, it, it's like they purposely made her look homely. Is that the right word? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. It's just like they found the most unflattering position to put her face in and her yeah. and her body language to just make her look awkward. Yeah. I mean, at least they didn't make her, like, incredibly beautiful like your typical Kirk chick. But, uh, yeah, they, they made her kind of plain. Right. And her uniform is very uh, loose-fitting. Um. Yeah, like she's really emaciated underneath it or something. Uh, yeah, or she got the wrong size dress. <laughs> uh, she, 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 she's a nice girl. She's a nice girl for, for Chekhov. Come on. She's not really that nice, though. He proposes to her, and she's like, well, oh, I'd really like to, but... Mm. Yeah, but she's being realistic. I get it. I get it. Yeah. But we'll, we'll see later that she's... she Maybe she just doesn't feel the same way for Chekhov as he does for her. Well, and she doesn't know how to tell him. Well, yeah, that could be. And she could also be in very in love with her career and doesn't want to give it up like Riker or Kirk. Right, that's true, that's true. <sighs> yeah, so something I'm confused about, and, and you and you mentioned it in the beginning of your synopsis, 
they're talking about how Chekhov and Ohura are able to get together with Sulu, who's on the Excelsior, uh, captain of the Excelsior, and and they're like, hey, we just came off of that that Klingon tripping thing, and which which happened in, in previous issues, the 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 the, the last issue, uh, fifty nine, I guess it was. It, that's where it wrapped up, and it's like. I did not realize that during that three or so part uh, Klingon trip in the past, that Sulu was on loan and that he was a, a captain at that point. Well, that was the alternate version of Sulu. So in the alternate reality, he was not captain. <sighs> so remember that was the that was one of the changes that uh, of the ripple effect. So oh, Worf right. was science right. officer. Sulu never became captain. Okay. Okay. Okay, that's right. cool, but <clears throat> so this is the first time they have met up with with Sulu since they wouldn't have any memories of that alternate timeline, or they but, shouldn't, even though they kind of yeah, implied but, Kirk would. But okay, so somebody told them about the Klingon adventure, right? Well, they Cause it, didn't. They did, weren't they aware of the Klingon time tripping adventure? Well, yeah, you would think so, since the Enterprise was there. In above the Guardian of Forever, right? Oh, well, whatever. Anyway, um, don't don't think good, about good it too point. hard. Good point. <laughs> it was very confusing by the end of that issue, what people remembered or didn't remember. But it seemed like at the very least, Core didn't he say at the end that he did remember the adventure to Kirk? Yeah, Core remembered. Worf remembered. Worf remembered. Kirk, Kirk remembered. So I think everybody who went through the Guardian. Remember okay, both timelines. Okay, Which however, really he was still not sense. a captain. Yeah, it doesn't. But okay, fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, and another thing about that that didn't make sense was, you know, they had that whole last scene where Worf is like, "You asked in the, you know, in the past, you asked what I would be if if the Klingons were not the peace loving race that that we are," and the answer is, "I'm an arbiter." Which we knew he was an arbiter because we've all seen Star Trek Six, but right in Star Trek Six, didn't it kind of seem like that was the first time Worf, Kirk, and McCoy had ever met, and Worf was kind of the the, the court appointed yep. attorney. Yep, very true, very true. Well, so, uh, I thought that was also a little odd that that they had this meeting before Star Trek Six. Right. Oh well. But again, thinking about it too hard, and and that was a couple weeks ago, so <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, so by this point in the story arc, after the first issue, I thought it was pretty obvious that whoever's in that big ship shooting down the radiation beam, they thought they owned the planet, and the uh, Harani were basically trespassing on their territory, because their planet, because the Harani had only been there about 14 months, so who knows. Right. Um, so that's what I thought was going on. I thought it was kind of obvious, quite frankly. But I was suspicious that you know they they couldn't get him to uh, to communicate with them. But maybe they were just the kind of aliens that said, "Hey, I don't need to communicate to anybody. I'm just going to kill you." Right. Um, yeah, and we'll see if you were right in the next couple issues. We will. Yes. So I thought it was, and this is going back to Sulu's giving the the tour to to check off. Yeah. I know that Volume 2 of Star Trek, the comic book, doesn't necessarily keep Volume 1 canon. Uh, 
because you know there was a time where Sulu, Kirk, Spock, Chekhov were all aboard the Excelsior. So this this scene right here is really a a nod or a really throw it in your face that all those adventures that they did in Star Trek Volume One did not. Uh huh. Okay. Otherwise, <laughs> Chekhov would not need the tour. Right. Right. Which I guess I'm okay with because you know a lot of time had passed since Volume One and maybe right. we hadn't read that that series. But oh no. I think if it's the same publisher, you should keep the same continuity. Continuity, yeah. Well, that would be good. But, uh, you know, there's been so many different stories made uh, of the Star Trek universe. It's really hard to to keep everything in sync. And besides, this is all made up. You know, so it's (laughs) like, you know, yeah, I'd prefer that. But, eh. And especially, as you point out, the same publisher. But eh, eh, at some point, you just got to say, hey. Right. And and a good story. Right, and and I'll even say, okay, I'll buy that when issue one came out of volume two, you started over. So everything that came out after volume two started should all fit in the same continuity. Right. Yet uh, we'll see here in next issue that, you know, Chekhov is going on his first away mission since he's been on the Enterprise, and we've already seen that first away mission on the... the uh, what is it, Modala Imperative or whatever it was, where they made a big deal that this was Chekhov's first away Adventure. mission. Ah, ah. So, and, and that came out after the Volume 2 started, so I was like, does that not fit this continuity either, or is Chekhov just misremembering? No. I don't know. I like things to match up. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. <laughs> but, I mean, it wouldn't matter if you had Sulu's memory. Boy, what is up with that? <laughs> I don't know, but as we'll see in these issues as they continue on, because basically we're seeing that we're getting this great little story going, and uh, it's Chekhov telling the story to Sulu, and multiple times, as you'll see, uh, Sulu just says, "I don't remember any of this," <laughs> and yet it shows him sitting next to Chekhov during the you know during the oh, yeah. crisis and stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and, like, there. Do you remember the giant ship? Why? I shouldn't have to tell you the whole story. <laughs> uh, of course, the good thing about Sulu's lack of memory on this particular adventure is that uh, Chekhov gets to get, tell all the details for us, too. Sure, but, sure. It's yeah. it's amazing. Right, it is. Yeah, I thought, it, I thought it was funny. All right, I have a couple more things. Well, we were talking about artwork and how it's a little inconsistent. Uh, there on page two, it shows like a profile of the Excelsior. And that looks really weird. Yeah, the the really shiny one. Shiny, it's... smooth, and the shape's a little bit wacko. Yeah, and it's like a purple color. A shiny purple color. Yeah, well, it's a purple color on the first page, too. Right, but at least on the first page, it looks like the Excelsior. The, the, it does. The next it's got one a nice doesn't. detail. It looks like, uh, yeah, it looks like the movie uh, Excelsior. But but right, not only, I mean, and they're both purple, but this thing looks almost, uh, it's like really shiny, low detail. I mean, they've got some detail here and there, and especially the engineering section. It's like, there's just something weird about that. It's just not shaped right. No, it's not. And it kind of threw me off. Yeah. And then uh, on page nine, I think there was a um, word balloon error. That or or is kind of a jerk. 
because there in the second to last panel on page nine, um, somebody says from which person. Right. And the word balloon is pointing towards Ahura. Ahura, right. Either she's being a little sarcastic and making fun of Sulu's accent, or it's pointing to the wrong person. Chekhov's accent, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did I say Sulu? Yeah, I meant Chekhov, sorry. Right. Personally, I think think that that should have came from Chekhov. It should have been, and I think it does. That's what it's supposed to, right. As opposed to coming from a smart smart alecky Ahura. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, just pointing to the wrong person. Right. All right, and then I had one more nitpick that I have actually proved that I'm wrong. So, okay. but I would like to just go ahead and talk about it. Um, they say that they're getting a radio signal from the colony, and they okay. emphasize the word radio. Yep. Radio travels at the speed of light, right? Yes. And they say that the signal's coming from two light years away. So that radio signal yes. should be two years old. Yep. Okay, so I'll buy maybe that the radio signal, when they say radio, they really mean some other type of communication. So Right, subspace communication. Right, maybe it's some sort of slang, they just say radio. But then they order warp six to go two light years away. And I was sitting there thinking... How fast is warp six, and would it really take enough time for Chekhov to go off and have dinner and all this other stuff <laughs> if they're only going two light years and they're going at warp six, which is six times the speed of light? Right. Right? Yep. So I looked it up. Uh, oh, God, Donovan. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. I looked it up. <laughs> warp six is supposedly actually warp, you know, because it goes by exponential, exponential right? right so yeah. Warp six is actually two hundred and sixteen times the speed of light, and so assuming that this thing was really two light years away, that would be about twelve trillion kilometers away. Speed of light is six trillion kilometers. Yeah, and so two hundred and sixteen times six trillion kilometers per year Uh it would still take three days for them to get to go two light years which to me that was amazing because I always thought it was going a lot faster than that me too that yeah that was interesting that you went and did the math yeah I had a whole spreadsheet (laughs) (laughs) I was really going I was like I gotta figure this out because right because it seems like two light years away, warp six, you should be there in like a couple of minutes. Pretty quick. But uh, no, if, if if warp six truly is 216 times the speed of light, it still would have taken them about 81 hours to get there. Uh-huh. Interesting. That was pretty cool, I thought. that That's very cool of you. <laughs> so I, I, I prove, you know, like I said, I, I'll buy now that it, Chekhov did have time to go have dinner and find her in the Arboretum and have all those scenes, but I still have a little problem with them emphasizing the word radio so much, and then that signal only being a couple of months old. Right. Okay. I'll that's, buy that. That's nitpicking. It is. Any more comments for this one? Nope, I'm good. Excellent. So I'll do the next one. This is issue number 59, No Compromise Part 2. Published date, April 1993. Things are pretty much the same people, but not quite. Howard Weinstein is writer, Carlos Garzon is artist, colorist uh, Dave Graff, uh, letterer is Bob Panaha, and Margaret Clark is the editor this time. 
The cover shows a large ship that you can only see the very bottom of at the top of the cover firing down on a planetary surface with a red beam of apparently destructive light. The beam is passing the original Enterprise that dominates the center of the cover. McCoy's head appears between the nacelles looking concerned. Ahura is at her station and looking pained. A small shot of an explosion on the Enterprise bridge is at the lower left corner. On the lower right corner is Kirk's head in distress and surrounded by some kind of light or twinkling energy field. Kirk's log sets the stage for the issue, reminding us that their attempts to stop the mysterious ship bombarding the Harani colony with radiation has so far been futile. Livestock and even some of the colonists have succumbed to the radiation. Kirk, McCoy, and Chekhov are on the planet's surface with Veneth, the colony leader, assessing the damage. Later, back on the Enterprise, Scotty is telling Kirk that they may be able to extend the ship's shields over the colony and protect at least part of it. However, the strain on the ship would be huge. On the planet, Chekhov, Julia, and Mr. Spock are surveying crop fields and find them dead or dying due to the radiation. Everyone on the surface are in spacesuits to help protect them from the radiation. Spock, on the surface, is reporting to Kirk on the Enterprise about how the colonists chose to transplant plants from their home world to feed their livestock also from their home world of Hanari. They've done this rather than putting more effort into adapting to the planet's native plants and animals. The colony was not exactly thriving before the radiation bombardment came, but now... Later, in the colony clinic, Dr. McCoy has just pronounced an adult woman named Tyos dead. She was not young or weak, so this triggers a fear reaction from other colonists. In particular, a woman called Kea starts to freak out and blame Veneth for her death, since he is the colony leader. Veneth strenuously objects. Spock asserts his authority and clears the non-essential colonists out of the medical center. Kea says this is not over with a venomous intent. McCoy compliments Spock on his timing, which kept the backlash on Veneth from getting out of hand. On the Enterprise, Scotty is telling Kirk they can project the ship's deflectors down to the planet, but they cannot cover the entire colony, and they can only keep it up for a few days. Kirk decides that is no solution at all. Later, during a senior staff meeting, Kirk does not hear any better ideas, so he decides to beam over to the alien ship alone to talk them out of the murdering of the colony. Naturally, objections are raised by the staff and rejected by the captain. The attempt to beam over fails due to the alien ship's defensive screening coming up during transport. Scotty is barely able to get the captain back, and when he arrives, he is unconscious. Later in sickbay, Kirk awakens and tries to leave. McCoy is successful in convincing him that Spock is in command now, and Kirk needs to leave things to him until he recovers. Speaking of Spock, he has directed Scotty to implement the plan to temporarily protect part of the colony with the ship's deflectors. Spock beams down to the planet and is speaking with Veneth while the colony's population all move to the area protected by the deflectors.
It's a tight fit, and Veneth confides his concern over the trouble that Kea is stirring up. She and others chose to focus on the temporary nature of the deflector plan rather than the fact that it is protecting them for now. Chekhov confirms all the colonists are in the protected area. When suddenly, directed energy beams start striking near Spock's landing party and Veneth. It's Kea and her followers. Spock notes how bad their marksmanship is when Veneth runs away from them to draw their fire. He indeed seems to be the target and is winged. Spock directs Chekhov to help Veneth to safety. Then Spock is shot. Chekhov and Veneth are able to transport back to the ship, but no one else. Scotty, who was at the con, takes the call from Kea, who tells him she has Spock and Julia as hostages in a secured location. They and Veneth will have to meet all her demands to secure their release. To be continued. And those demands are? We don't know yet. <laughs> we'll have to wait till the next issue to find out. I don't even remember them in the next issue. Well, she never had a chance to say much. <laughs> as we'll find out. Right. Yes, so... The ship's shields. The deflector shields. shields. Deflector shields? Wait a minute. Don't they have shields, and they don't they have the deflector? Oh, right, All, right. Right, now... Now, I think they both have similar technology, but they're not quite the same thing. The, right. uh, as I recall, the deflector field comes out of that big, big, big antenna dish, that, 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 that round dish in the front, and that extends far in front of the Enterprise to deflect away any kind of matter that might be in its way when it's traveling at a really high rate of speed. Because when you're traveling that fast, if you run into even small particles, it could potentially rip through the ship. So that's one technology. And then shields, the ship's shields are, are different. So I think first they talked about shields, but then they pretty much settled down into the deflector technology being used to protect them. And I don't know. If the deflector technology is supposed to be in front of the ship to deflect things away... Wouldn't you think if you kind of shot that down on people on the planet, you'd kind of like crush them? <laughs> that's what was coming to my mind anyway. I could be wrong. Oh, that's funny. I didn't even thought about that. Why? Well, I'm just because they have a little art thing that's showing like like a beam coming down from the Enterprise and 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 hitting the colony. <laughs> that's funny. I could be wrong. No, you're absolutely right. It it, it doesn't really make sense why this would would work. <laughs> Now, the shields, that's different, but they kept yeah, on talking about the deflector. And, and I would think that, you know, if they really wanted to, you know, they keep talking about how much energy it takes to send this deflector beam down to the planet. Wouldn't it be better if the Enterprise just kind of positioned itself between the ship and the planet? Yeah. And kind of like... With the shields on? Yeah, right, Right, and just kind of take absorb the radiation or whatever, or def deflect right. it in some way. Yep, that's another one. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, of course, Kirk, muy muy macho, I will not ask somebody to do something I would not do. So he beams over, which is kind of funny. Right. Well, that's classic Taz that's classic, Kirk. That's classic Kirk, huh? I'll tell you. Yeah, I, I, I was a little disappointed in the artwork of him being beamed away and then just coming back and falling down. Yeah. I wanted to see that writhing energy that was on the cover. You know, right. him, like doing the classic, like, screaming <laughs> at the camera. Yeah, 
and then, and then screaming out, pain! You know. <laughs> right. Which, which is what the cover promised me. You know, the vibrant <laughs> energy and his his face all contorted in pain, and then when it and happened, of course him like, bloop, fell over. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm not buying it unless the Shad is screaming out, pain! <laughs> so that we really know it's painful. Right. Yeah, well, you, you know how we know this is first season? How? Uh, because when Spock and them go down to the planet to do the radiation checks, right. Kirk takes this time to take his shirt off and do some sort of gymnastics thing. <laughs> and, and well, which, when, he, which he's obviously cleaning up from. Right. And you can right. still see other people on trapezes behind him while he has to go take take the call at the wall. Exactly. Uh, shirtless, of course. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Kirk workout without it. Which I don't think that... One, I think that's an inappropriate time to work out. I mean, you just... Yeah. I, I don't know. You just came back from a, the, an alien planet that's having lots of issues. People are dying. I'm going to go do some trapeze stuff. Uh-huh. Spock, you take care of so. stuff. Yeah, exactly. You take care of things for a while. Uh, and the only thing I have to say about that comment is, uh, was Chekhov in season one, or did he come in in season two? He came in on season two. Okay, okay. I, I thought so. Okay, good. But I don't think that we saw Shatner without his shirt too much after season one. No, I think season I think season one was mostly the uh, the shirtless Kirk thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I might be wrong, but I, I'm thinking that he pretty much keeps it on after season one. <laughs> I don't know right. why, but he does. I don't know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also thought it was a little inconsistent on when they do and don't wear the um, space suits. Space suits? I completely agree. Because there was a part where everybody else had space suits towards the beginning uh, that were on the planet. And then, boop, there's Spock. He's just hanging out. Hey, hey, everybody. Now, mind you, there are times when they're inside of a building. Right, right. So it's like, okay, well, I, maybe it has radiation shielding. But there's a spot where Spock's outside, you know, just you know, catching some rays. Right, when he's, uh, talk, when he's talking to Kirk exactly. during the shirtless scene, he's just out there with the, with the elephant animals. <laughs> exactly, who are dying of radiation. Hello, right. why? Do you know why, Spock? Because of radiation. You should be in a suit. Anyway. <laughs> so you, you thought that was funny too, huh? I thought that was odd. It was a bit inconsistent. So uh, I have an opportunity to comment on a space weapon. Oh, great. So I, I feel compelled to right now, if I may. It was, it's at the very end when, when we have the terrorist action right. taking over everybody. Kaya's. So, so basically, Kaya's got a gun, and so do some of our other people. And the one that she's carrying looks an awful lot like the original phaser rifle. That they had used in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Okay, very similar, but not exactly the same. So the very back of it is different, but it pretty much seems like the middle and the front is very much like it. Right. And the thing that's odd for me is, okay, so this is a colony, and this is not an Earth colony, right? This is like some other folks that are not not part of the Federation, as far as I can tell. Right. Right. Yeah, they're not human because we'll we'll see in next issue that. Their physiology is a little different. Exactly. Uh, McCoy has some difficulties. So, but the thing is, they've got weapons that look a lot like like Federation issue. Not quite the same, but still, or at least based on Federation technology. Right. So I was a bit thrown off by that. 
And who knows, maybe they're trading partners or something. I don't know. But I had the impression more like they didn't really know these people that well. Yes, that was the, the feeling I had. Right. And then and then there's a second weapon, which really just looks like an even further stripped-down version of at least part of a phaser rifle. That, that might have, you know... And that's the one that she's holding? Well, okay, the one that she's holding looks a lot like a Where No Man Has Gone Before phaser rifle, except for the right. back of it. Right. But then right across... So this is the final page, really. Right. The final panel, really. Yep. Uh, there's, a, there's a confederate that's across from her, and he has another kind of phaser rifle sort of kind of thingy, which looks like it's different, and it's got some of the components of the Where No Man Has Gone Before phaser rifle, but not... Well, anyway, it... it I, I thought their choices for drawing these weapons for this colon, these colonists were, were, was interesting. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah, because... Yeah. And if you look on page 21, we see, like, the little hand phasers that they're using when they shoot Spock. Oh, right. Okay. And some of those... Yeah, what do they look like? I don't yeah, remember. They have two different kinds. One looks like a, a normal silvery pistol type thing. Oh, right. And then yeah. one looks like it has a big dish at the end, kind of like the rifle did. Like the phaser rifle, right. Right. Yeah, when, see, and they show three of them there, don't they? In that one panel, there are three. Two of them are, sh- are firing, and the other one looks like it's being adjusted or something uh, before being fired. And uh, and I was definitely getting, like, a, I don't know, third season Lost in Space vibe with some of those. But, yeah. Interesting. Third season Lost in Space, meaning there would be a giant carrot? <laughs> no, the... Uh, I'm kidding. Interesting reference, but in the original, at least the first season, maybe the second season, but at least the first season, they had a little bit more conventional black-colored uh, lasers that were their weapons. Then in, like, second or third season, probably third season, I don't know what it was, when they got the shiny aluminum foil uniforms... Their weapons totally changed into shiny silver ones, and it's really amazing how they got the new outfits and the shiny silver weapons since they were nowhere near Earth. But whatever. All right. Yes, I have not watched Lost in Space, so I don't know. <laughs> Sorry for that little uh, little tangent, everybody. <laughs> I like the elephant creatures. I don't think I actually said that earlier, but yeah, they they are kind of cool. So they they kind of look like small elephants with trunks and stuff. Uh, but then they have other details that are different, don't they? Right, they're 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 hairy and they have humps like a camel. Yeah. And some sort of ridge-like horn. So it was an interesting look for a, a you know, a, a herd animal type thing. Right. Yeah, that was cool. But then later they just have like normal-looking goats, which I thought was little more traditional. Little conventional. Little right. too conventional, maybe, yeah. for alien creatures. Right. Yeah, you don't have to you don't have to make them with your special effects department, so you can pretty much do whatever you want. Exactly. And yet you go with goat. <laughs> Good point. So I was kind of wondering on the planet, or actually on the Enterprise once Chekhov and Venith beamed up. Chekhov says, "Where's Crandall and Mr. Spock?" And I thought, "Crandall. Crandall." And sure enough, Julia's last name is Crandall. And right. it's like, "Oh, Wow, you so in a time of stress like that, you still you still don't want to show favoritism by using her first name, the love of your life. Okay. Yeah, he does that at the beginning of next issue too. 
Yeah. So he seems to be going out of it. At least they bothered to say, well, if I were Chekhov in this situation, a little uptight back back in those days, you know, he may have wanted to make sure that nobody knew that he he was, uh, you know, she was his close buddy. So maybe that's why he would use her last name, but it seemed kind of unnecessary. I mean, they all call each other by their first names pretty much. Right. All right. And then my last comment has nothing to do with the issue itself, but it has. Okay. There's there's a pretty cool Babylon Five advertisement on the the back cover. Yeah, there are a couple interesting ones. Um, the Babylon Five one is interesting, cool ad. You know, shows the station and some of the main characters. But also, there's a pretty interesting one where um, where Robin and some chick, uh, Huntress. There you go. Huntress, right? Are smashing through some windows in on some like gangstery kind of looking guys. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who the bad main bad guy is who appears to be standing on top of the table, the conference table. But he's kind of interesting looking. I have no idea who he is. Uh, yeah, when I when I first looked at it, I thought he was a, a character called Anarchy. Okay. But then uh, when you started talking about, it, I looked at it again, and and Anarchy doesn't have that type of almost religious looking outfit like this guy does. Right. He looks like he even has like a cross and stuff where yeah. Anarchy didn't have that. But Anarchy had that golden face, so uh-huh. I don't know who that guy is. Hmm. Interesting. So I thought that ad was pretty cool. And also, uh, I think this issue, or maybe it was the last one, but I'm seeing really interesting Green Lantern uh, ads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for uh, the, um, the Emerald Dawn thing. Because Green Lantern... Hal Jordan at this time turned evil. Right. And he looked, uh, yeah, he de- the ad in issue 58, he looked evil and very powerful and his outfit was quite different. Right. And he changes his name to Parallax, which if you paid attention during the 2010, 11, whatever movie, movie. Yeah. the movie, the big yellowy monster was also called Parallax, so. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. And then the in this issue, there is a picture of another Green Lantern kind of guy, but that can't be Hal Jordan. That must be some other guy. No, that's Kyle Rayner. Yeah, he's the uh, he was the new Green Lantern for a long time. Oh, uh, interesting. And his outfit is a bit different. Black and green? Hmm. Yep. Predominantly black. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it was okay. the 90s. They were, they were revamping everybody, so... So, yeah, Hal Jordan became Parallax and went evil... This new guy, Kyle Rayner, became Green Lantern. And had to take him down or something? Yeah. Well, I think they had a whole miniseries. I think pretty much all the superheroes had to get involved. Uh, there for a while, Hal Jordan was one of the biggest bad guys in the DC Universe. Man, really? That's yeah. Weird. Yeah, because a lot of Green Lantern fans were, were kind of peeved about that because that was their hero, and well, now he's one of the biggest bad guys in the DC Universe. But then eventually they kind of retconned it and said that he was taken over by this uh, entity called Parallax. That's why he uh, changed his name to Parallax, and that once the entity was excised out of Hal Jordan, he became back to his you know, normal back to his normal self. Oh, okay, cool. But yeah, therefore, while he was he was a pretty nasty dude. Yeah. Okay. Enough of a side side trip. <laughs> Another side <laughs> trip. I'll, uh, thank you, Ken. All right. So next up is issue number 60. Uh, this is the same writing staff. Even uh, Margaret Clark is back. So I guess Robert Greenberger was just that one issue. Right. This is called No Compromise Part 3. came out June, June. of 1994. 
All right, and and when you, when you read these, did you notice that the three covers would fit together to make one panoramic picture? I did not know that. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to look uh, between the three again. Yeah. I did not realize. If you look that. at the if you look at the cover art for this episode, I uh, I already did it, and it's I just put the three pictures together. Right. To make to make the large picture. Hmm. So this is the third part of that picture. So we see uh, a shot of Chekhov and Kirk in their in the old original series type spacesuits that kind of look like they're made out of clothy material. To the left, there is a sad picture of young Chekhov, and behind him is the silhouette of a woman leaving, going through a door. And then the uh, right-hand side is a shot of the movie-era Chekhov, uh, very sad. And for no reason at all, there's a floating communicator above his head, <laughs> which is just really peculiar, of all things. D- did you understand why that cover had a floating communicator, kid? No idea in the world. <laughs> it's just like we need something here. What? But what could we put here? Oh, well, we have a picture of a communicator. Let's put it there. It was so weird. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the story. So don't get all excited that the communicator is going to be an integral part of the story because it ain't. Yeah, it isn't going to start talking on its own, saying, "You know what? I think you should do this." No. <laughs> All right, so the story starts off with uh, Scotty still in command of the ship, and we're uh, assumed that we're hearing the very end of Kia's demands. Kirk is still recouping from his failed teleportation in the last issue. But, because you can't keep a good Kirk down, he does barge onto the bridge while Kia is talking, and he just says, I don't care your demands, Kia. Starfleet doesn't bargain for hostages. Enterprise out and cuts the communication. So he tells the bridge crew that they will not be bargaining with them. Chekhov is very grief struck with this news and he tells Kirk, you cannot abandon Spock and Julia. And again, he calls her Cardell and not Julia. So then Kirk tells him that he's still captain and then he goes into a little thing about no officer's life is more important than the safety of the ship or the sanctity of the Starfleet mission, which is very odd coming from Kirk. But anyways, we shall keep going. Uh, Chekhov tells the captain that he will confine himself to his own quarters due to insubordination. Kirk again tells the young man that he is not the one in charge, and that Kirk is the one that will make those calls, and right now he needs Chekhov at Spock's station. In sickbay, McCoy is working on Veneth. He is in the middle of surgery and having issues since he's not quite sure of the alien's physiology. In the transporter room, Scotty is having issues testing the transporter. The boxes he tries to beam over are always coming back all melted. He tells Kirk that it might be impossible to beam a person. Chekhov arrives in sickbay as McCoy is finishing up to check on Veneth. The doctor thinks he'll pull through. On the planet, Julia confronts Kia. She tells Kia that she is just as bad a leader as Veneth was. Kirk then contacts her at that moment and informs the terrorists that the Enterprise will be leaving in one hour unless his officers are released. With the ship gone, everyone on the planet will die due to the radiation. He is not bluffing, and the people are starting to see that. 
In the transporter room, Scotty has had success. Chekhov scans the box that made the round trip and confirms that everything is good. Kirk says that he'll be beaming over to the alien craft, and Chekhov volunteers to go with him. On the planet, the other colonists are not happy with Kia's leadership, and one of them smashes her in the head with the butt of a rifle. They will be releasing the hostages to keep the Enterprise and her shields in orbit. As Chekhov and Kirk are suiting up in their classic original series spacesuits, Julia joins them and shares a hug with Chekhov. The two men then beam to the alien craft and discover that there are stasis pods all over the ship holding all kinds of animals, but they all seem to be dead. Following a computer signal, the two arrive in a large auditorium of some sort and are greeted with a message. Welcome, settlers. Your long journey has ended. Your new home awaits. Back on the Enterprise, Spock confirms that the radiation bombardment has stopped. Later, the crew learned that the ship was built as a colony vessel. The ship would arrive at a planet, bombard it with radiation to kill life that was already there, and then repopulate it with life forms from its home planet. However, this ship malfunctioned, and all the plants and animals died in its transit over 15,000 years ago. Julia decides to stay on the planet to help the colonists adapt to their new way of life. So instead of trying to change the planet to suit their needs, they're going to adapt their needs to what was already on the planet. Julia's parting words to Chekhov are, perhaps they'll find a way to each other again. We then flash to the present, where Chekhov is finishing his sad story, and his last words are, But we never did. The end. Ah, regrets. Ah, the regrets of a young old Chekhov. Right. Ah, well. Well, he'll get over it, because I saw him hit on quite a few people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I, I gotta say, so the artwork, even though it's... It's by Carlos Garzon again. Does it look really different? Not on page one, but on page two. And that is the number, right? Yeah, page two. Yeah, page two and some of page three looks a little little odd. Yeah, it looks like I'm guessing a high school student did it. <laughs> well, there's some very talented high school students out there. Oh, no, it, yeah, but I'm just saying, somebody who has enough talent to get things to look, you know, that you can recognize who these people are, but kind of rough. And doesn't Chekhov look... He looks like a high school student. I mean, I mean, he, he looks like the same age as the new Chekhov in the 2009 <laughs> movie. Well, maybe that's what they were going for. Well, I guess they were. Well, but, they wanted to but, make him look like Davy Jones. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely had the, um, the Beatles haircut, didn't he? Right. Yeah. So I was kind of thrown off by the artwork. Uh, but 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 the first page was you know just like the first uh, the the first two issues of this right. arc, and then boom, it's like oh ooh, ooh ah little well, jarring. I think the, the coloring was is different. I mean, it's like really bright on those two pages, and then it goes right. back to kind of a muted color mm-hmm. throughout the rest of the story. Right. Or at least in my my copy of it, that's how it is. Yeah, mine too. And isn't Kirk a great guy at the beginning of this? I mean, he is really... He is the best dad in the world to check off, I'll tell you. (laughs) 
Well, Chekhov's kind of weird. Okay, I'll I'll report to my quarters for insubordination. Right. Oh, did you, are you the captain now? <laughs> I thought that I thought that little interaction was 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 cool. Yeah, but like, I gotta th- say, I thought it was too fathers know best kind of thing. No, no, I no, I, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, oh. <laughs> isn't Kirk like? Like the best father ever. I mean, he just—he's just dealing with uh, this young ensign just so well. You know, encouraging, nurturing. He's very nurturing. Right. Well, he definitely is in this issue. Yeah. 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 That's good. And his little, you know, talk. I—I I, I skipped it in the synopsis, but when they're putting on their suits and Julia gives him a big hug. Uh, oh yeah. Kurt kind of asks him, "So who's that?" And, you know, and then Chekhov says it's complicated, and he's like, "Yeah, they always are." <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Well, it, it and you know maybe as a more senior officer who isn't the captain, you know that's kind of that's kind of cool. But as the captain, you know, shouldn't I don't know? It just like I don't know. It seems a little a little light-handed. Hmm. Of Kirk to well, do that. But, well, he you know. he wants Chekhov to succeed. He's trying to groom him into a future captain. He doesn't know that Chekhov will spend the next forty years <laughs> sitting in the same chair. <laughs> well, no, he he moved from navigator to security. He's, then he stayed there forever. Right, but somehow that somehow the navigation station became the security station, and he never got out of that spot. Oh, did it? I thought... Uh, okay. He had a different spot in Star Trek The Motion Picture. In the picture. movie. Right, yeah. But then in Star Trek 2... In Star Trek 3, he's back in the normal spot. Okay, okay. Yeah, because most of 2, he was like... You know, with, taken with over. The, with the earworm? Yeah. Who is nice enough to leave your body so that somebody can shoot him. Or right. shoot, shoot the thing. As opposed to what Pike in the 2009 movie went through. Or even uh, Chekhov's captain in the Wrath of Khan. I mean, yeah, he well, had to himself to get it out. Exactly, and it's like if you're not a main character who's going to be around for a while, you pretty much <laughs> have to shoot yourself. But if you're a, if you're a main character, you get it to come out just the right time. Right. Yeah. Nah. Well, in regards to Kirk's little speech when he's you know. Being the father to check off, right. like talking earlier, right? He says there's nothing more important than the safety of the ship or the sanctity of Starfleet mission, right? Of its Starfleet mission, yeah. Which Kirk's always going off and doing his own missions and things like that, which I thought was a really odd thing for Kirk to say at that moment. <sighs> well, but he's yeah, I, I know what you're saying. But I'm thinking maybe he's trying, or the writer, I should say, maybe Howard's trying to say uh, the mission, you know, to seek out new life and new civilizations, you know, that kind of thing, as opposed to necessarily the prime directive, which Kirk bends that around to his own wishes all the time. But, you know, but still, he's, you know, he's out there protecting people and, you know, doing the the big mission. Right. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, anyways, I just thought that was a little out of character for him. Yeah. But that's just my opinion. Yep, yep. There you go. So on page four, I thought Nurse Chapel looks much older than what she was during season one and two of yeah. the original series. 
Plus that profile there of her uh, when she's, uh, you know, using that monitor thing and it's going beep, beep, beep. Right. That's really not Majel Berry at all in that profile. Well, then and, what about the next picture? Where Well, the, the, the head-on one isn't too good either. <laughs> but that profile, that's really not her. No. But, yeah. Well, maybe it's not her. He never calls her chapel, so maybe it's another nurse. Yeah, could be. Maybe could it's be. Nurse Pulaski. <laughs> oh, that would make her really old <laughs> by the time Next Gen came around. Second season. Uh, ooh, that's a uh, that's 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 kind of uh, that's kind of an insult. Okay, yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, what else you got, sir? I gotta say, I'm just uh, you know I, I like how Julia, you know, had quite a backbone down on the planet when Spock was unconscious and everything, and she stood up to her and stuff. And you know, she might be a little bit plain Jane in the looks department, but uh, she's she, she's got some guts. And I am, I can kind of see why she wants to uh, continue her career and stuff. She's just that kind of plucky individual. But that's just it. She doesn't continue her career. She goes off to stay with the colonists. Which, oh. since this is not a Federation well, colony, was she? she well, did, her career. Okay, so I didn't get that at the. I mean, I know she stayed with them, but I didn't know she she left Starfleet. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. Why would Starfleet want to have a presence there? Well, to help them for a little while longer instead of just saying, okay, later. I've seen enough Star Trek. That's all they ever do. They don't ever leave anybody. Well, usually they have somebody coming along later, although I will say that in the Corbomite Maneuver... What you fail to realize here is that uh, in the Corbomite Maneuver, they did leave the... uh, What, the Helmsman? Whatever his name is. What was his name? David? David, yeah. Bailey? 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 I forgot what it was. But whatever his name was, they left him with uh, with the peanut butter and jelly kid, Clint Howard. <laughs> what you call him peanut butter and jelly because of something he did, right? I yeah, think you've told me this story before. Yeah, he was he was in uh, an early episode of uh, Andy Griffith Show, okay. and he was the kid with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It was very brief. <laughs> but 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 apparently, even back then, Ron Howard was getting gigs for his uh, brother Clint, or whatever his name is. Yeah, Clint. Yeah. Yes, that's definitely him. <laughs> right. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So you think she just gave up her career? Oh. I don't know. Well, I didn't she do, really, she does I didn't really a, understand why she was she was going to stay. Well, she does have a nondescript white jumpsuit, doesn't she? I, I thought it was really abrupt. I was just like, this doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we just have to get, get her out of the story so that Chekhov will never see her again until she dies. Right. Which it never says how she died. No. Or did I miss that? No, I don't think it did. Yeah, Ahura uh, says I, she's dead. Which no kicked off this whole this whole recollection. Right. If I was Chekhov, I would be, how? Yeah. Was it painful? Uh. You would want to know how somebody died. Anytime someone says somebody died, you... First, that's the first question you ask. Oh, really? How? Yeah, it just says that she was killed. Hmm. Right. But I'll be honest. When I when I finish the story, I assume she died on the planet. But you're right. It doesn't say she's going to be there forever. Yeah, and when uh, when word comes about her being dead, it comes from Starfleet. So I'm not sure if that's because she was part of Starfleet, or whether that's just what where they get their communications through. No right. matter what the topic, because they're on a ship. I don't know. Right. Anyways, it's it's a nitpick. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. It's funny how uh 
Ah, oh well. All these characters, most of them don't end up with anybody. Ah, oh well. <laughs> it's sad. It is kind of sad. Really, I don't have anything else to say. It's just that, you know, overall, I like the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poor Pavel, but, you know, hey. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I enjoyed it. It was nice to have a little classic era type Star Trek. Right. I mean, I, I think that's why I liked the Modella incident back when we did that. It was mm-hmm. just like, that was kind of felt like a lost episode of the, sh- the show. Right. This one, not so much, didn't really feel like the lost episode of the show just because... I don't know, nothing really happened that was all that exciting, but I still yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I did. And, and but there is something I'm a little confused about. So, this was some kind of pre-programmed, the big ship that was doing the radiation thing, it was some pre-programmed arc kind of thing that mm-hmm. first irradiated the planet before it Seeded put, deposited it. right deposited these life forms on there is that that's yeah. the deal yeah what's wrong with that <laughs> <laughs> well at least with project genesis they made sure there was no life forms on the on the barren rock before they let it go i mean before they detonated it but eh. it just doesn't seem right it doesn't seem right of course i live in phoenix and back in the 50s and 40s and 20s Joe, there's all kinds of orange trees and, uh, you know, grass and, you know. It was only until more recently that a lot of that, you know, grass and those those kind of things have declined in popularity and they've started to use more of the native Sonoran Desert, fa- desert fauna right, uh, to decorate homes and that kind of stuff. But, I don't know, it just seems like it's a kind of a rash way to handle things. Did, did that uh, that change that you're talking about happen around 1994-ish, where people hmm. started saying, you know what, we should stop trying to import these vegetation from other parts of the land and just use what's here? No, 80s, 80s, 90s. Right. Well, yeah. But I mean, but that was definitely the message here. But both the colonists yes. and yes. the alien art craft yep. were doing the same thing. Right, exactly. And unfortunately, because of these other aliens doing it, uh, sorry, Colony, you're going to die. So it's like, wow, it hit you over the head with a mallet right. about that point. Well, you, you can't change can't change the planet. Well, you can if you have a uh, Genesis bomb. <laughs> but the Genesis bomb's not real. Radiation is. <laughs> so is an arc ship that could shoot it down real? No. Sure, yeah, sure. Why whatever. 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 Anyways, what else you got? Anything? Nothing. No. Eh, nothing. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into Expanded Universe then. Uh, we actually have four months because for whatever reason, May didn't have an issue. So. Yeah, that's kind of odd. Yeah, so we have we have a couple to cover there. I'm not going to go into them uh, because we're kind of running long. Um, March 1994, there was an original series uh, hardcover novel called Sarek by A.C. Crispin. This is set after Star Trek V, maybe even after Star Trek VI. But basically, uh, it kind of tells the story of Amanda Grayson. She's about to die, and you get uh, a nice little story with her and Spock and everybody. Yeah, It's good if you haven't uh, read it. Uh, The next one, uh, also March, is a Next Generation novel called Sins of Commission by Susan Wright. 
Um, haven't read this one, so that was that one. Uh, April 1994, we had another original series novel called The Patron Transgression by Simon Hawk. And also another Deep Space Nine young adult novel uh, called Stowaways. If I'm not mistaken, this is the only uh, Deep Space Nine young adult novel I had. And at some point, you know, when I moved somewhere, something, somewhere from when I was a kid to now, uh, that novel has disappeared. So, hmm. but I'm pretty sure that was the one I had. Do, that was do by. You like, what's that? Do, do you like those young adult novels? Because I've never, I don't know that I've ever read them. You know what's funny is that. I always have a harder time reading the young adult novels than I do the quote-unquote adult novels. Uh, I guess maybe it's because the characterizations and stuff are so flimsy that I have a hard time staying interested in it. Oh. And I usually will read, you know, like a, a couple pages, and then I'll be like, oh, I'll go do something else. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas when I'm reading one of the actual novels, I usually get so, you know, engrossed in the story that I usually can finish those. Right. Uh, but I haven't tried to read a young adult novels in a couple of decades, so... Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not a young adult anymore. Exactly, I'm not. There you go. Okay. All right, May 1994, there was a Next Generation novel called Debtor's Planet by W.R. Thompson, and a Deep Space Nine novel called Betrayal by Lois Tilton. Not Lois Lane, Lois Tilton. Mm-hmm. June 1994, another uh, original series novel called Traitor's Wind by L.A. Graff. And I did find out something interesting about L.A. Graff um, is that she's not a real person. She's actually oh, a, a... Yeah, it's a pen name for a, a group of like two or three women authors. No. Hmm. And I mean, they've written tons of Star Trek stuff and I've read a lot of their stuff and I've always enjoyed it and I always thought it was a single woman. But uh, it's a it's a pid name for the writing team of Karen Ross, Sarone, and Julia Eckler. Hmm. And then there was also sometimes another woman named Melissa Crandell. But uh, again, that, I thought that was a, a an interesting little tidbit. Hmm. Also in June, a novelization of All Good Things oh, by hmm. Michael Jan Friedman. Hmm. So that dates this uh, this time pretty well, I think. Uh, and then last in June, there was a, another young adult novel, this with the Next Generation staff, called Capture the Flag by John Vornholt. The Next Gen uh, young adult novels I didn't like because it was during the the Starfleet Academy days. So it's mm-hmm. like a you know a little Geordie how he first meets Worf nah. and Data and all this other stuff. And, oh, and God. I just uh, had a hard time buying that they all well, knew each other Yeah, they weren't all Starfleet Academy. I mean, well, that's obvious. So, I mean, obviously, Data was not at Starfleet Academy when they were because he had been in Starfleet a lot longer, right? Right. But in, in the novels, it's implied that, that they were all there at the same time, hmm. which so, I didn't like. Because yeah. I always thought Worf was quite a bit older than Geordi. For some reason, maybe not Man. quite, a bit, but not the same. But older anyway. Yeah. Yeah, not the same graduating class. Right. So, anyways, that was kind of the reason why I didn't like the Star Trek: The Next Generation ones. Whereas the Deep Space Nine ones, it was more like the Hardy Boys, where it was you know Nog and Jake. 
doing and something. Their, and their little misadventures all over the ship. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Kind of like that issue we read a few episodes exactly, ago. Exactly. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. All right. Well, that finishes up this episode. So uh, next up in issue or episode 111, we'll do Next Generation 58 through 60. Sounds good. Excellent. And, and it will not be a three-parter. Uh, that'll have interlocking covers and all that other good stuff. Oh, it won't. Okay. It will not. Okay. They're standalones? I, I think one standalone and, and a two or three parter, so it might carry over to the next next week. Okay. Cool. But there's a cool, uh, just to kind of give you a teaser, Michael Jan Friedman, who also wrote all of the Stargazer novels, he uh, writes a Stargazer flashback so there's a there's a pretty cool scene of uh, or cool part of these next issues with Picard in command of the Stargazer cool Picard with hair <laughs> now that's wacky yeah I know right yeah alright so hopefully uh, we'll talk to you guys next week sounds good thanks for joining us everybody on Star Trek comic book review Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.